Okay. It was my freshman year of college and the second week of school when I was sitting in the dining hall. There's Libby right next to my dorm. This is at CU Boulder. And I'm sitting with some guys in my hall when all of a sudden one of them starts sniffing the air. He's going, he says, do you smell that? Everyone around, including myself, we started doing the same thing. We're like, I don't smell anything. The guy next to me starts going, yeah, it smells like puke. Gosh, I do it again. I'm not smelling anything. Well, the guy next to me, he goes, I'm definitely getting it. It smells like puke, and it's coming from, it's coming from mining. Mining smells like puke. That's my last name, right? You don't know. The major's name is John. Well, I'm incredulous. Why do I smell like puke? I don't smell it. How am I getting pointed out? Well, here's, here's the reason. The first weekend of the semester, before classes even started, my roommate, he partied way too hard, and he threw up all over the dorm floor. But instead of like cleaning it up properly with paper towels and Febreze, he took his jeans that he was wearing that night, and he just wrapped the jeans in this pile of puke. And then he took it to the laundry hamper in our closet, and he threw it in there. Okay? It sits there in this closet, inside this hot Colorado closet, and there it bakes for 10, 11, 12 days. For nearly two weeks, the puke-covered jeans are cooking as if in a crock pot. They're simmering, they're brewing, they're stewing, and the odor is starting to leak out of the closet and leak into our clothes. But here's the deal. My my roommate and I, we had no idea, right? We were too close to it, as it were. We were like goldfish, uh, asking what's water, swimming in this stuff, just not knowing what it is, right? Not only were we too close to the problem, the process, right, was too slow. It was too gradual for us to notice, right? It was a slow invasion. It was a gradual takeover of our clothes, and we couldn't see it, and we couldn't smell it, but everyone else around us could, and they did. They knew what was up. We smelled like puke. We were the stinky kids in college, and it was only week two. And if someone hadn't spoken up, we would have been that way for much, much longer. And here's how this connects with what we're looking at tonight. We all have things in our life that if ignored or untended to, will take over our Instead of a good life, we'll have a life that stinks. Or in the case of the story that Jesus tells, a life that is completely swallowed up and choked out by weeds. Last week we saw what happens when seed, the word of God, lands in in rocky or shallow soil. We saw what happens when it doesn't put down deep roots. Because it doesn't put down deep roots, it can't take the heat. Uh, As soon as the emotions wear off or some difficulty arises, this life of faith, right, it just withers up. It's gone. Well, tonight we're introduced to a plant, uh, to some seed that lands amongst the weeds. Unlike the seed or the word of God that lands on the path or sort of the hardened heart, right, the seed actually gets inside this time. It actually 
penetrates the heart. And what's more, this plant puts down deep roots, which the other one failed to do last week. But sadly, something is still off. Something still goes wrong. What is it? Well, Jesus identifies the problem in verse 7. He says, The reason why this plant fails to produce any fruit, grain, is because this plant is choked to death. It's strangled. You could say, by whom or by what? Jesus answers that in verse 19. He says, it's choked out by the worries of this life. The lure of wealth and the desire for other things. Or as another translation reads, right? The cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things. What kind of things are we talking about? We're talking about things like the American dream. To be rich and famous. To have that big house or that fast car and that white picket fence. I mean, there are all kinds of cares and concerns that can crowd out the life that Jesus wants to work inside of you. And an obsession with wealth is an obvious example. We find this in the middle of Jesus' list, I think for a reason. Uh, In his most famous sermon, Jesus says, You cannot serve two masters. You cannot worship God and money at the same time. You will either hate one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't do it. But there are other weeds in the garden, as it were. Other cares of this world and desires of the heart that can just as easily take over your life and choke it out and crowd it out. What we are talking about here are what the Bible calls idols. Uh, An idol is anything besides God that we put in the place of God, thinking, if only I have that, then I will be happy. Then I will be something. Then I will be satisfied. Then I will have the good life. Then I'll be hashtag blessed. Anything besides God that we put in the place of God. And these idols, they come in all shapes and sizes. You can pick your poison. Maybe it's prosperity, popularity, power, pleasure, protection, even your prerogative. They don't all start with P. I just thought that was fun. Right? If being rich and having the most possessions is the most important thing to you, the life of Jesus is going to get squeezed out of you. You might ask, well, how or why is that the case? Well, think about it. The way of Jesus is a way of generosity and hospitality. It's a way of sacrificial giving. It's about sharing your resources and not hoarding them. This is why you can't serve God and money at the same time. You can't do it. If being popular or being seen as cool is the most important thing to you, the life of Jesus is going to get squeezed out of you. And it's true, Jesus drew large crowds, but many in attendance hated him. He said lots of unpopular things. He ate with sinners and tax collectors, what folks nowadays would call losers and scumbags. He ate at their table. He faced constant rejection and ridicule. And if you follow him, you'll follow him in this too. If having lots of power and exercising authority over lots of people is what's most important to you, the life of Jesus is going to get squeezed out of you. Jesus is the most powerful person on the planet. He's the Lord of the universe in the flesh. But he shows us what true power looks like. It looks like giving your life away for the sake of others. 
It looks like washing feet, not having your feet washed. If you want to live a life of ease and carefree living, a life that is painless and full of pleasure, the life of Jesus is going to get squeezed out of you. The way of Jesus is the way of the cross and self-denial. And when we follow him, we're often led into places we don't want to go. Right? Towards suffering and not away from it. Towards hurting needy people who make demands of our time. Not those who make our lives easier. Being safe and protected is the most important thing to you. If what is driving your life is being safe and having your kids safe and avoiding all kinds of pain and suffering, the life of Jesus is going to get squeezed out of you. As I said before, he moves us towards suffering. He moves us towards scary, uncomfortable places and towards hurting and broken people in situations. Or maybe you don't care about any of those things. Maybe you don't care about possessions or power or popularity or pleasure or self-protection. Maybe what matters most to you is your freedom. It's just doing your own thing. It's your prerogative. I want to do what I want to do. That's what's most important to me. And here, if this is what's most important to you, again, the life of Jesus is going to get squeezed from out of you. Because he says, come and follow me and take my yoke upon you and learn from me and do as I do. and Follow in my footsteps and I will lead you in the directions that you should go. And that might not be the directions that you always want to go, but they are paths that are good and beautiful and true. Here's the point. There are weeds, right? Weeds, cares, concern, desires that can easily take over your heart. That are fighting for your heart, fighting for real estate there. And that takeover will be slow and subtle, but it will surely crowd Jesus out and choke the life that he is growing in. Because weeds lie so close to our hearts, we often fail to recognize them for what they really are. We just assume, oh, that's just natural. That's just the way things are. We fail to recognize them. And because they choke slowly and not all at once, we hardly know it when it's happening. It's like the broccoli in our teeth or the stinky jeans in our closet. They can be there without us being aware. We can see them. We, are, we can't see them, but other people can. And this is why other people can be of such help to us. They can show us our blind spots, and they can help us deal with our idols if we let them. Because we all have them. But here's the thing. We cannot fix what we do not see. And this is why you cannot bear good fruit without putting down deep roots, one. But you can't bear good fruit without getting weeded idols. You need roots, and you need people to weed your life. Last week, Jesus invited us to put down deep roots. And this week, Jesus is inviting us into relationships with other people too. People who love us, and who care about us, and who know a thing or two about the kingdom of God and the ways of following Jesus. If you don't have people like that in your lives... People who can point out the weeds and help you disentangle them. Then the life of Jesus is going to get squeezed out of you. That's what he's saying here. 
Many of you here who are trying to follow Jesus are trying to follow him by yourself. You want deep roots, but you don't want other people meddling in your life. You don't want people weeding your life. You don't want people really knowing what's going on inside of your heart. You want, you might want to have deep roots, but with other people you want things to be kind of surface level. Deep roots with Jesus, but here kind of just shallow, right? You don't want people to challenge you. You don't want people to change you. You want to be left to your own devices. And this isn't going to work. What Jesus' story shows us is that a plant with deep roots can also be overcome by weeds. A plant with deep roots can also be overcome by weeds and fail to produce any fruit. This is what Jesus is showing us in the story, and this is his application. You absolutely need to put down deep roots if you want to live this good, fruitful life, life to the fullest as it was meant to be lived. You need deep roots. You absolutely need a deep, intimate, personal relationship with Jesus. But that is not all. You also need people in your life who can call you out and call you in. People who can help you identify the idols in your life and who can help you deal with them, disentangle them, sort of get them off of you. Specifically, what kind of relationships are we talking about? We've identified sort of the problem, right? What's the solution? Well, specifically, the kinds of relationship I'm talking about, I'm talking about having good friends. You really need friends. I'm not talking about Facebook friends. And I'm not talking about drinking buddies. And I'm not talking about all the followers that you have on TikTok or Instagram. I'm talking about friends. Talking about people who know the real you and who love the real you. People who have taken the time to understand your story. People who know its ups as well as its downs, right? The peaks as well as the valleys. People who are close to you. And I mean that in a literal sense. Right? People who are present to you, who know what's really going on. Right? They know when you're faking it. They know when you're pretending that everything's okay, when it's not. And they're not going to let it slide. As I said, they don't just call you out. They call you in. They know when your life is rosy and when it smells like puke. I'm talking about people who know what you love, who know what you hate. They know what your dreams are, and they know what you're afraid of. And what's more, the kind of friend I'm describing knows what makes you tick. They know what is most important to you, what your ultimate cares and commitments are. Let me talk to the Christians in the room. Because I'm not assuming that you all are Christians, but let me talk to the Christians in the room. If your ultimate care and commitment is to Jesus and to the way of Jesus, your best friend is going to know that about you. That's not going to be a secret. 
Not only will this best friend know this about you, they will love you for it. They will not find your faith embarrassing. They will find it beautiful and a source of beauty in your life and in the life of others. Your best friend will want to nourish what is best and brightest in you, which is why they are willing to say the hard thing when weeds pop up and they begin to squeeze out what is most life-giving in you. This is one of the most important ways that they love you. It's not when they're always affirming. Sometimes they love you when they're critical. That's them being caring. That's them helping you to tend to your blind spots. Because as I said before, we cannot fix what we do not see. And we cannot live life to the fullest without friends like this. It's wedding season right now, which looks and sounds like weeding season on the page, but it's wedding season. And uh, I went to the wedding of a former RUF student, UVM alumni, last weekend. I'm going to another wedding this weekend in North Carolina, and then I'm going to be in a wedding the following weekend. So there's lots of weddings happening right now. A lot of the weddings in 2020 are being pushed to 2021. It's on. And I love them. I I, I look forward to weddings, and I look forward to the opportunity to be with some of my dearest friends. Uh, When you invite people uh, to your wedding, um, Sam and SJ are going to be getting married in the spring. My sense is that you're going to be inviting the people that you're closest to, the people that you're closest with. right? The bride and the groom are there that day to make public, permanent promises to one another. Right? I'm saying yes to this one, and then saying yes to this one, I'm saying no to everyone else. That's fair. Right? That's the way it works. Right? I'm saying yes to this one for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, and until death do us part. Bride and groom right, are making promises about the kind of people they want to be and the kind of life that they want to live. And they're doing this in such a way that everyone who's closest to them can hear it. Right? These are not things that they're saying to one another in private. They're making this public. This is who I want to be. This is the kind of life I want to live. And the reason they're making this public is because marriage... Like the life of faith, it's hard, and you can't do it alone. You cannot do it faithfully and fruitfully in a vacuum. You need these other people around you to help you and to support you and to keep you true to your promises. And that is why those people are there. They're there as witnesses to the promises. Not there just to eat your cake and to tear up your dance floor. Though they can do that too. The reason you really want this group of people around you on that day is so that they can hear the kind of person you want to be, the kind of life you want to live, and that they can support you in that. That's what friends do. That's what family does. As I say this, there's a point of tension that I've been feeling all semester long, but I think really comes to a a head here. Jesus is saying there really is such a thing as the good life. There really is such a thing as life as it was meant to be lived. Life to the fullest. There's a way to do this well. 
And there's a way to really mess this up. Our culture doesn't like that. Right? Jesus is saying one of the ways that you can mess up your life is to live in isolation, right? Totally cut off from other people. But another way that you can really blow it is by surrounding yourself with people who never challenge you. By surrounding yourself with people who only affirm you. These are people who, if your life is being invaded by weeds, just watch us. Don't want to rock the boat. If your life is being taken over by weeds, they clap. You do you. Good for you. That's not a friend. A true friend is someone who knows and loves you, but also has a sense of what the good life is and what it entails. Right? They know the difference between the kingdom of God and the American dream. They know the difference between following Jesus and following your heart, which sometimes misleads you. They know the difference between right and wrong, and they know how to get you back on track. You want to live a good life? You want to live life to the fullest? You're going to need people like this in your life. The the culture hates this kind of talk because it doesn't believe in objective truth. It only believes in subjective realities, that everything is relative, that you do you and nobody has the right to tell you otherwise. And this gets extended. It gets sort of um, carried over into our conceptions of friendship and our conceptions of love, right? Since there's no right or wrong, since no one has a right to tell anybody anything, right? We, we end up with this culture of you do you and let's just affirm everything about you. That's what it means to love somebody. And I think that's nonsense and I think it's ruinous. You can love people without agreeing about everything with them. And surely, you don't agree with everything about your best friend. Surely, right, you have differences. You can accept people and love them without affirming everything about them. In her book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, I think Rosaria Butterfield gets us close to the mark by drawing a distinction between accepting people and affirming them. Right? We can be accepting of all people without having to affirm everything about them. I mean, take Jesus, for example. Jesus is the most loving person on the planet. He's accepting of everyone. He welcomes everyone to his table. He's a friend of sinners. But he's definitely not affirming, not in the sense that you and I might think. He's saying, I love you, I accept you, I want to be in a relationship with you, but there are definitely parts of your life that are out of whack. There are definitely parts of your life that I can't affirm, that are backwards. And that's not me, that's not Jesus being mean, that's not him being exclusive. That's, him, that's part of him being loving. He's speaking the truth in love. He's calling you out of the weeds, and he's calling you into fellowship. Right? We can do this. There is a way that we can be accepting without having to be affirming too. This is easy for me to make sense of as a dad. I love Willa to death. Willa's my six-year-old daughter. Uh, and because I love Willa, I don't, I don't want her to do things that are going to hurt her or destroy her. <laughs> good, right? That's like a good dad. I'm always going to be accepting of her, but I'm not always going to be affirming. I want to tell you a story about this just from the past week. Um, on Sunday, I re-injured my hamstring. I had pulled my hamstring playing pickup soccer like right before the semester. Well, on Sunday night, after the retreat, after hanging with our friends, I was going to take Fella for our last, you know, evening walk around the block. 
Well, as I'm walking out my door, I see somebody in my driveway who's trying to break into my car. And so I scream, hey, the, the wannabe thief, he takes off running, and I start chasing after him. And these, right, my Birkenstocks, the worst footwear ever for chasing down a robber. Uh, I lose at one Burke at the top of Henry Street, and I lose the second, like, I don't know, 50 feet later. And so I'm running down Henry Street in my socks with my dog on a tight leash, chasing this robber. And I'm telling him, like, you're going to get it. <laughs> wasn't very Christian of me, but I was mad. And we turn left, and I turn right on Loomis, and I'm hunting this, this robber down. And all of a sudden, <sighs> my leg seizes up, and the chase is done. And I limp back to my house, kind of with, like, some frustration. Um, when I get home, I have to put some icy hot, like muscle relaxer on my leg. And I don't know if you've ever seen the tube of icy hot. It looks like toothpaste. I leave it on the counter. Well, yesterday, Willa goes to brush her teeth and she's excited because there's like this new tube of toothpaste with like a rainbow logo on it. And she puts it on her toothpaste and she starts brushing her teeth with it. Well, this is really dangerous because like icy hot is toxic, right? And so when I find out what she's done, I'm not affirming. It's not like, oh, you make your own choices. Like, you do you, Willa. Like, no. I'm there with tears in my eyes and tears in hers, like trying to wipe the icy hot out of her mouth and make sure that she's okay. It's maybe a silly example, but it just, I'm, it's something that's at least fresh on my mind. Like, I can be accepting of my daughter. I can be for her 100%, but I'm not always going to be affirming of her decisions or the choices that she makes. This is intuitively true. You know this is true. Even if we don't hear this being explained a lot, you know it's true. We can accept without having to affirm all the time. Our culture is confused on this point. It's confused about what it means to love. It's confused about what it means to be a true friend. Where are you going to find a true friend? Right? Someone that you can safely share your secrets with and Uh, that can help show you your blind spot. A friend who knows you and loves you and loves what you're truly committed to and will hold you to those commitments. Who's not just going to call out sin, but it's going to call you in time and again into deeper fellowship, deeper friendship, and deeper love. Where are you going to find a friend like that? Uh, Where are you going to find a friend, honestly, like Jesus? Well, I hope you find them here. I hope that you find them here in RUF, certainly UVM, but I hope you find them here in this room, in small groups, on retreat. I hope you find them too at the local church level. And there are plenty of good churches for you to check out here in Burlington, Vermont. And for some of you, this is the next step of faith for you to take. You have in place deepening roots, right? You are learning how to connect with Jesus at a personal level But you don't have friends like this. You don't have friends like the ones I've described. Not only do you not have friends like this, you're not in a community like this. Or maybe you're just at the margins. And the excuses you could give is, I'm too busy for that, or I just don't need it. But Jesus will gently but firmly say to you, you're wrong. You're wrong. You need to be connected to me, he says. But you also need to be connected to my body here on earth. You need to be connected to my community of people. You need to be connected to the church. If you don't want to be like the plant in this story that's choked out by weeds and strangled by the world's cares and desires, you need Jesus and you need friends. You need the church. 
And looking for a church, some of you all don't know where to start. And that's why Sarah Jane and I are, are here in a lot of ways. We're here to help you with that. One of the main reasons why we're here, in fact. Uh, the truth is you can't be an RUF forever. We're not pushing you out. You're going to graduate. right? You can't be an RUF forever because college doesn't last forever. At least it ought not to. Right? Because <laughs> there's a way to do that. I don't advise it. <laughs> College doesn't last forever, but you know what? The church is always there. It's here for you now, and it's here for you afterwards. And you don't have to wait until you graduate to get connected to her, to connect to, to it. You can start literally like this Sunday. And I'm certain that in time, you will find people there that you can be your truest self with. You'll find people in church where you don't have to pretend to have it all together. You can come as you are. And church is a hospital for sinners. It's where spiritually sick people like me and you go to get healed. Because we're all a mess, if we're honest. We're all broken and needing Jesus. But even though we're worse than we imagined, we're also more loved than we dreamed. And you will meet people in church, and I hope in RUF too, who can speak that truth into life, into your life, and who you can speak that truth into their life too. Because you don't just need them, they need you as well. You don't just need good friends, you need to be a good friend too. I'll wrap this up. Um, in the movie Toy Story 2, Woody gets toy napped by this grimy, sleazy toy collector named Al. Remember this movie? Okay. Al's trying to get the whole Roundup game, right? Remember that? Right? So he can sell them in a museum. And in sort of captivity, Woody is given a glimpse into how famous he really is. And he, he starts to be seduced by this vision of a new life hidden behind glass. He imagines life in this museum with lots of people lining up to see him. And he starts thinking about trading in Andy's love for a lot of anonymous likes. He's forgotten who he is. And he's forgotten whose he is. The weeds of fame and popularity, they start closing in on him tight. And they start choking the life out of Woody. But this is the point where Buzz and Slinky Dog and Mr. Potato Head and the crew, right? This is at, it's at this point that they break into the room. They break into his life. And they start to speak truth and love. Woody, it's time to get out of here. This place stinks. This life stinks. You are not a collector's item. You are Andy's toy. To borrow language from our parable, they start to take off the weeds. And at first, Woody refuses. But as he watches his own commercial on TV, with You've Got a Friend in Me playing in the background. This is true. I watched it today. With You've Got a Friend in Me playing in the background. The truth of what they are saying finally starts to sink in. And he looks down at the bottom of his boot, which has been painted over. And as he scratches at the paint, he sees the signature of his owner, Andy. And the N is spilled backwards. It's still there. And it's in this moment that he remembers who he really is. That he is Woody after all. That he's Andy's toy. That he's loved. That he belongs. That he has a home and a narrative that defines his life. And that when that life starts to get choked out by other cares and concerns, right, lures of wealth and fame and desire for other things, 
His friends are there to pull those things off of him and to guide him back home. To live life to the fullest, life as it was meant to be lived, whole and holy, healthy and complete, you need to be receptive to God's word. You need rest, as we saw this weekend. You need roots. And you need another arm. You need relationships. You need friends. So who is your Buzz Lightyear? Or Slinky Dog or Mr. Potato Head? Right? Who are the people, who are these people in your life who know the real you, who know who you really are and what you're really about, and who hold who love you enough to hold you to that? Who can spot your blind spots and who can disentangle your weeds? Friends, you need friends like these. And we in RUF want to help you find them. Let's pray.